Hello and welcome to Revise, Rebut and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography, an avid science communicator and a still relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, resubmitting, and having their first academic paper published. This podcast is very kindly supported by the DSI-NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences. Welcome to our final episode of Season 1 of Revise, Rebut, and Resubmit. Today, I'm speaking to another very young and early career researcher, Keegan Fraser. For his honors research project, Keegan explored the accuracy of media reporting on the climatology of tropical cyclone Edai, reflecting on statements of fact that were portrayed in these news articles pertaining to the category of the tropical cyclone, the wind speed, the amount of rain, flooding, and damage. He was awarded the top research project mark in his class for this work, the Stanley Jackson Prize for the Top Geography Honors Student, and the Society of South African Geographers Award for the top honors project in geography in the country. A few weeks ago, a paper from his research was accepted for publication in the international journal, Weather, Climate and Society. Keegan is currently studying towards an MSc in geography, focusing on quite a different topic, constructing a livability index for Pretoria that could be used in the insurance sector. Welcome Keegan, and thanks so much for joining us for this final episode of the season. Jen, thanks for having me. So Keegan, let's start with giving the listeners an overview of what your paper is about. And for those who are not too familiar with tropical cyclone climatology, perhaps a bit of a background about why cyclone Edai in particular is such an interesting storm for us to be looking at. Tropical cyclone Edai was one of the few cyclones to originate from in, within the Mozambique Channel and make landfall in Mozambique, making it a fairly rare occurrence. It was also a severe storm, which caused lots of flooding, not only in Mozambique, but also countries further inland. And it's not only from the storm, but just from the rain prior to the storm and after the storm. My paper looked at, firstly, tropical cyclone Adai, what it is, its category, and the extent of the damage. Then it started to look at uh, the news articles and how these news articles have been reported and then looked at the discrepancies between news articles and how these ones are different to one another and where potential uh, sources of misinformation might occur within the articles. That's pretty much a very simple explanation of my paper. I think that's a great explanation, especially for some of our readers who are less familiar with the field. Um, so Keegan, in turning an honors project into a research paper, I think a lot of people imagine that this is quite a simple process. An honors project tends to be quite a bit shorter than a master's dissertation or a PhD thesis. And so in format, it's quite similar to an academic paper. Uh, perhaps you can talk through your experience in how we had to mold that from a research project into a paper and then in a while, we'll also talk about how that molding continued through the review process. But let's start with talking about, firstly, turning that 100-page research project into something that was ready to be submitted to an academic journal. 
Yeah, I think reducing it down is probably one of the hardest things to do. Because like you just said, there was 100 pages was my original thesis. And say of that is 70 pages of writing because the rest is references and whatnot. But trying to take that 70 pages of writing down to, I think it was 25 to 30 pages to put into a paper is quite tough because everything that you think is important, you put in the paper and now you need to take out I don't know what, you have to just remove stuff that you think will not be important. And then reviewers ask, but did you research this? And you have to say, yeah, well, here's it all from my, my other paper. And that was probably one of the hardest things to do to reduce it down. And as much as we probably think it's an easy process, and perhaps it is for some people to reduce it down, but then your structure's all out because you've reduced it and your flow just sounds wrong so it's it's almost better to just start off trying to write a paper rather than reducing it from something that's a hang of a lot bigger I'd agree with that and I do often suggest to people particularly if they're working from a very large document that they treat the large document in a sense as a reference material or a textbook and that they start writing the paper from scratch. So they create the structure that they'd want to see in the paper and a whole bunch of bullet points in terms of what each of those headings might contain. And then they use the large document as a source of material. And some of that can be cut and pasted across, but often it's reading through the material in that much larger document and then rewriting that from scratch. And so I think that's a really good point that you're making. And I'm curious as to which approach you used or whether it was a hybrid between the two, whether you started off by cutting down and then in some sections wrote them from scratch. Well, I think it was probably a hybrid of the two for the first draft because you don't know what people want in the first draft. So you're taking your 100 pages and you're taking probably your first and last paragraph from each section and what you think is best and using those as then rough work to look back on and then you're rewriting everything from there because like I said copy pasting your other work then just ends up leading to confusion and it doesn't flow properly so a combination of both is definitely better and then when it comes to actual reviewing it from reviewers comments then it's easier to go back to your other paper, check what you might have said there and check in references and then going back to the, the journal paper and adding in what the reviewers want to see. Yeah, I think that's a really good approach. And as you say, it's really challenging when cutting down your own work because every sentence that you've written, every word that you've included, you had written or included for a very specific purpose. But also a lot of work went into that. So it's quite an emotional process to delete your own writing and to throw out uh, about 75% of the text that you'd written and decide which parts of it to essentially cull. So I think you're proposing a very strong approach to it, but we also do need to recognize how challenging even that approach would be. Yeah, no, you're very right. It's it's all challenging. I mean, it's not it's not an easy process. It's taken us a good couple months to get it all done and it's working on just maybe one or two sections a day just trying to sort it out and then it still comes back for 
for comments that you think, oh, you think it's done and then it comes back again and there's more comments to do. So it's just a continual process that's, it's not just a, a walk in the park, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for many people, particularly when writing their first paper, so much of your energy and emphasis goes into getting the paper ready to submit to a journal. And of course, that has many drafts in and of itself, uh, going back and forth between you and your co-author or co-authors and working to a point where it's ready to go into a journal. And I think a lot of people are then quite surprised and often disheartened when that actually is only step one. And you still have to go through this process of rounds and rounds of reviews from a journal and potentially a rejection from the first journal or couple of journals and a process of reformatting and resubmitting elsewhere. So it really is quite difficult to get your head around the fact that unlike when you're in university and all of your work is getting to the point of submission, but when you've submitted, that's it, it's done, it's going to get the grade that it gets, but there's nothing more that you can do. And I think you're raising a very important point here that you need to, in a sense, sustain your energy to be able to run the multiple hurdles rather than just seeing submission as the end point. No, exactly. You, you're very correct there. And as you raised as well, it's, we, we actually got quite lucky is that our, our first journal was accepted right there. And as much as we had to make quite a lot of changes, it wasn't as bad as some other journals might have been. And I think we got quite fortunate in that sense is that although they did need editing, it wasn't absolute major edits throughout the whole paper, which just would have been another hurdle to jump and another 100 meters to sprint. So fortunately, that happened. And I think I'm very grateful for that. Absolutely. My first paper, which was from my honors project as well, was rejected by six different journals. And eventually, with the seventh journal, I was delighted to get major revisions because at least it meant that it wasn't rejected. So it really is a huge accomplishment, particularly for work from an honors degree where the purpose isn't to generate new knowledge. The purpose isn't to push science forward. It's really just to go through the motions of conducting your own research. And so for a byproduct of that honors work to be a paper accepted in a really strong international journal and for that to be the first journal that you'd submitted to, is really a tremendous accomplishment and, and really just to say well done to you, Keegan, because it's something very few people manage to achieve on their first attempt. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate that, Jane. So Keegan, let's talk about the review process, because in this paper, I think we had a very interesting review process. And certainly for me, it's a review process that uh, I haven't experienced very often. So let's talk about the kinds of feedback that you got and, and what that meant for the paper. So obviously there's, there's different kinds of feedback. They, the first review, they give uh, major revisions. So that's like the, the major concerns that they had. Some of the major concerns included headings or paragraphs in the wrong places. And then there's minor comments from each reviewer of which there were three reviewers. So then the minor comments are like, why is this line number 294 here instead of in slot number 102? So, and then it, the comments go like that. So there were a lot of comments, a lot more than I thought there would have been, but I guess that's just also the first time that I've, that I've reviewed a paper. And then some of the reviewers are also 
reiterating each other. So then you can skip over five comment from each reviewer because the first reviewer has already mentioned that, which I didn't expect, but I guess it makes sense. Absolutely. It really speaks to a coherent understanding of the work that you're doing when reviewers bring forward very similar comments. And as you said, it makes it much easier to deal with the reviews if you can just say this is already addressed in our response to reviewer one or reviewer two. But I want to delve a bit more into what the review process meant for the final paper and how you morphed from this initial submission to the journal to the final product that was then published. Yeah, so when I actually look back at it the other day, my, my thesis paper is almost a completely different thing to the submitted journal paper. So one of the major problems was that the heading included the term fake news. The definition of fake news is uh, news that is constructed to deceive or is intended to deceive, whereas if you're reporting on something, you might not know it's wrong, but you can't call it fake news because you're just labeling potentially a whole news agency as fake, which could be quite damaging to them. So the whole, whole paper had to be moved away from fake news and more towards misinformation or disinformation, because the, the journalists don't know if what they're receiving is right or wrong. You, you presume it's right because it's been given to you from X news agency or from an aid agency, so they presume it's right. So that was one thing that the paper had to do was the title had to be changed. And then another thing was to restructure the entire paper away from trying to find where there are discrepancies in the reported information, such as between wind speed and flood level and storm category, and then where these news agencies got their information from, what source. But the whole paper was then realigned to the discrepancies between news agencies and then official sources or other meteorological organizations such as NOAA and Meteor France. So the whole paper was, was turned around to now look at where the articles differ to these official sources rather than delving deep into each article and into the source of the article and the source of that problem, which, which turned the whole paper on its head, really. That's why I almost think they, they're actually two different papers. I'd agree, and I think... It speaks to a few really interesting issues in terms of, of ap academic publication and the peer review process, but also an understanding that an honours research report goes to a very, very small audience. Uh, at FITS, at least, we don't publish those online. So the only people who get to read a research report are you, your supervisor, and your internal and external examiners. Whereas an academic paper is in the public domain, and anyone is able to get hold of that and read that. And so you do have to be a little bit more sensitive, particularly where you're reporting on issues, whether those are large issues or small issues, can have tangible impacts, as you say, on a news organization, on a meteorological organization, and particularly where any oversight on their part might not be intentional. But I think it's also interesting to think about how politics comes into play here, because something like a, the term fake news I think 
when you're going through the academic process, of course, you're really required to engage with precisely what published literature is saying as a formal definition of fake news. But I don't think that you were using the term fake news inaccurately in that initial honors research report. Because if we think about a lot of the issues taking place around the world right now, misinformation around COVID-19 COVID and COVID-19 vaccines, misinformation that uh, arises around elections, misinformation in terms of uh, major political issues and wars, there's a very, very gray area between what is accidental misinformation, what is deliberate misinformation, and where fake news sits on that spectrum. So if something is incorrect and it has implications in terms of, for example, the ability to deliver aid effectively or sufficient aid, it's difficult to say that that is not necessarily fake news uh, just because it wasn't deliberate. Yeah, I, I think that's quite an important thing to raise because although they might not be fake news, they still have an impact on people and society. And one of the, the things in my paper was that the, the editing is insufficient. But if you are a news organization and you know that your editing is insufficient, but you're still publishing articles, does that not still mean that you are now publishing fake news? Because it's not going through a full thorough edit. It's just releasing documents as quickly as they can, just so that they can get an audience. Then that probably does bend the definition of fake news slightly, but it could still be considered as fake news because they are knowingly spreading information that could then misinform the public. I think you're raising an important point about what is happening in our media organizations around the process of editorial review within news organizations and the role of an editor of a newspaper in being able to query and fact check things that the journalists are writing. But I think it also speaks to the fact that we are increasingly seeing this reduction in science journalism. And so you've got people who are trying to write about something that is really quite technical. A tropical cyclone has a very specific and technical climatology around it. And you may be a journalist who often writes about disasters, and those disasters might be widespread from landslides through to wars, through to tsunamis. But when you're talking about meteorological aspects, I think a lot more care needs to be taken that if you're going to talk about wind speed, that, for example, you're able to distinguish between sustained wind speeds and wind gusts, and to really know the difference between the terms and to understand the significance of how different those two readings might be that you're reporting on. Yes, I agree fully. And some of the comments that actually came through in the paper in the paper was that what is being reported, is it gusts? Is it average wind speed? Or what is what is the averaging period as well, which is one of the comments that, that I received from a reviewer. And I mean, some of that is you, it's impossible to then determine where did the source get their information from. But then when publishing it, the, the journalists might never have studied any sort of or had any sort of geographical background, and now they're trying to publish quite scientific news. So I think just, just running it by anyone that's studied that sort of topic wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad thing as an editorial process, 
just for someone to go through and say, just say that this is mean wind speed or this is taken from the weather station 20 kilometers away, so it might be wrong. Or just, just little things like that that can that can help the, the news organizations and give them more credibility. Because right now, if I see a paper come out on weather or something, I start thinking, but did you do this? Or did you do that? Or was it reviewed properly because of now the research that I've done? And it just starts making you think a bit more. And you, you almost come a bit more skeptical there as to what's been released. Absolutely. And I think one of the really interesting things here is because you were researching and reporting on news reporting, it's brought up two very interesting components. One is that in academic writing, we go through this incredibly rigorous process of multiple reviewers, a journal editor, all of whom are really digging deep. They're all specialists in the topic. And they are asking you the questions of, is the author here, is the reporter talking about wind, uh, mean wind speeds or wind gusts? Uh, so they know the questions to ask and you're going through this very rigorous process. And I think it highlights the difference in rigor and difference in academic background uh, of people talking about the same topic, the cyclone climatology of a die, but one being in this very, very, very fast paced, get information out within a couple of hours environment of news reporting versus the process that one goes through in academic reporting. But the second thing is then that where you are relying on media reporting as your database, there are often questions you can't answer. And as you said, if a reviewer asks you whether the reporter was talking about gusts or mean speed, and they haven't said in their news article that this is a gust or it is the mean wind speed, they just say there are wind speeds that those are comments that you can't actually address in the review process. There's no way that you are able to ascertain that from that information. And that's quite different to doing the kind of empirical research of perhaps exploring the climatology firsthand through all of the measurements that have been taken of air pressure and sea surface temperature and the wind speeds themselves and being able to classify that as a climatologist. Yeah, I think if, a climatologist had access to sufficient data, then you can delve deep into the storm and and all about it and where it changed. There's such a difference between these published articles and others. It's like they're trying to dumb down an article for people to understand. But just having two sentences with some decent academic context wouldn't be a bad thing in uh, news articles nowadays. Yes, and I think part of that is about differentiating between jargon and really unreadable scientific content versus just being scientifically complete in what you're saying. So a line or two that explains that in a tropical cyclone, you're both gonna have very high sustained winds and wind gusts and what those two terms means would allow a journalist to then be able to say in the following sentence, these are the gust speeds and these are the mean wind speeds. That isn't jargon. There is a lot of jargon that does come from science and that I think is really difficult to communicate to a general public. But I think, as you say, being able to do a little bit of a deep dive into what the science behind this is would mean for a far more accurate and far more consistent media reporting, particularly on an event that has this very technical climatology to it. 
Yeah, I agree. Consistency between reporting is is such an overlooked thing because if you are an average newsreader, you check the news every day and you see there's a tropical cyclone and you click on three different news articles and they all tell you something different, then you start thinking, but they said this and then they said that. And now who do they trust? Do they what do they go look at the source? Probably not. But then it comes down to, well, they're reporting a whole ton of information that you don't know is right or if it's wrong. So their trust goes that, A, you might lose trust in the news organization, but that obviously stems from which one you trust most and which one you then trust least. But also what came out in my paper is that sometimes you can lose trust in the scientific community because now they're saying, well, they clearly don't know the science of the storm. So something's going wrong somewhere. So you just don't believe them. And then something else comes up two years down the road. And now you just look at an article about another tropical cyclone and you just skip over it because you think the last one you looked at just had a bunch of very confusing and conflicting stories. And of course, that's a huge problem in the context of climate change and climate change denialism, climate change awareness and public action towards meeting the types of agreements that we need to have to keep ourselves to at least a 1.5 degree future and hopefully in the long term to turn climate change around. Yes, I, I fully agree. And if you lose that that level of trust, then people just start skipping over it. And I know some people are already desensitized to climate change news because you just see it so often. And obviously, if you haven't studied it, you might be unaware. For those that see some of these stats that come up, they just think, well, they don't know, you could be putting that out the sky. So they just skip over it. And now everyone that needs to be doing something isn't doing something. And that's just compounding the whole problem. Agreed. So Keegan, thinking over the review process and how it really encouraged you to interrogate terminology you're using such as fake news and interrogate what information is valuable to the scientific community. To what extent has that been framing the way in which you are now approaching writing and academic writing for your master's dissertation? Um, well, I think they're so different in terms of obviously the paper you have to be so concise and succinct with what you're saying, whereas when you're writing a longer uh, thesis or dissertation, then you're trying to explain something in a lot more depth and a lot more detail and in a lot more words as well. But I think one of the main things is I find myself needing to write five pages and I'll write three and I think, but I've said everything I need to because you, you're trying to be a lot more concise with what you're saying. And then it's just going through things, reading over one sentence several times and then the next day, just to make sure that you're not skipping over those silly little letters that you've missed or you've put in and twice or something that your spell check has missed. And doing that now just makes the review process later so much easier because you're gonna to have to review a paper again before you submit it. So by doing all of that now just makes it so much more simple later on and just less of an of an effort. But I think the main thing with having to go through the whole review process is 
just trying to be more careful in what you write and not just trying to blurb words down onto a page to get it done and then go through and sit for hours trying to review it. Yes, I think those are important points and a very useful lesson to have learned so early on in the process is that it does help to be careful, read through your work often in the early stages while you remember what it was you were trying to say. Because often if there is a typo or perhaps poor grammar or issues like that that seem very minor at the time, if you come back to them in a year's time, whether it's from the review process of an academic journal paper or even just in terms of feedback from, from supervisors or examiners, those are sometimes really difficult to address down the line if you can't remember exactly what it was that you were trying to say or the context of that. Uh, sometimes you look at that work and you think, I have no idea what I was trying to say in the sentence that clearly is missing a verb or has a typo. I don't know what that word was supposed to be or missing a reference or perhaps the reference is there in text, but it's not on the reference list. I think you're quite right that being aware of how difficult it is to address those things down the line means that focusing on them as and when you're writing will make for an easier process in the long run. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, when when I started writing the or doing the reviews for the, the journal article, and it had been a couple of months since I finished my thesis. And then you read a paragraph and you, you think, I've got no clue why I said this. And you have to go and reread your thesis paper and see, oh, okay, the above two paragraphs actually explain this, but they've been taken out of your journal paper. So you have to then restructure your whole thing for it to actually work. And I think it's, and then obviously when you read something over and over and over again, you start missing the basic things as well, but then you come back three months down the line, you read it and you think, what on earth was I saying here? And you end up just deleting the whole paragraph and retyping it out. And it's, that's just the review process that, that takes time. It's things you don't, you don't think of that then end up coming to get you. Yes, I mentioned this earlier, but I think it's pertinent here as well, that it's such a shift from the way that we are encouraged to work in school, in undergrad, and even in honors, where the end point is submitting a document. Whereas when you move into master's and PhD, and when you're involved in writing academic papers, the end point is when you've got that final letter of acceptance or when you have that final letter of qualification for the degree. And until then, it's a process of reworking and rewriting and rethinking over and over again to iteratively produce a, the best possible piece of work and to see your supervisors and your reviewers and your examiners as key parts of a team who work towards a final product that is as clear as it can be, but also that makes the strongest contribution to knowledge that it can do. Yeah, I, I fully agree. In school and varsity, you you sort of, you sat down in an exam hall, he has four questions, you have to write five essays, good luck. Whereas when you're actually doing something that's worth review, you take weeks or months to review it properly to have a final product. And then with the, the reviewers, all of us have to work as a team because if you completely conflict with someone else, 
then you have to try and work that out. I mean, that's what it's like in everyday life anyway. You're going to be working with other people. So you have to try and come to a common grounds. And that happened in the review process. Sometimes they would say, uh, we think you need to change this or add in a graph. And you say, I don't think that'll work because of this and that. And that's, that's a, a relationship you develop with the reviewer, even though you don't even know who they are. It also seems like they've put in a lot of effort to help you produce this final project and they, they don't get any recognition for it. Yes, one of the strangest parts of academia is the amount of uh, unseen and indeed unpaid work that comes from the reviewers themselves. And part of that is because we are all sending work out to review and we are all reviewing for each other. But I think it is so important to, to see that as really service being done by the reviewer rather than somebody who's sitting out there just to attack you, that it is part of the team who's produced this piece of work and that they've made a really intellectual contribution to it. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it does feel like a personal attack. It's like, well, what, what was wrong with my English in this sentence? But once you've reread it three times, you understand, okay, they're coming from this perspective and they're trying to help say that the whole of your your paper or the academic community produce a paper that's actually worthwhile that's going to contribute to knowledge rather than letting information that they don't see fit just leak through and and yeah i think that's quite a it's quite an important part is that although it, it might seem like a personal attack it's it's criticism and it's constructive criticism and i've taken it and you have to take it and obviously use it in your paper, but then also throughout the other work that you might be writing, such as in, in my master's now, writing that, you, you use that criticism still. Agreed. So Keegan, to finish off this episode and indeed this season, I wonder if there's any further advice that you'd like to give to people who are starting off their honours degrees or wrapping up their honours degrees or starting off on their master's. I know you've given a lot of advice in terms of how we can use the learnings from the review process to improve our writing and approach to writing in our master's degrees. But is there any other advice you'd like to give as the Stanley Jackson Prize awardee, as the Society of South African Geographers a prize awardee, and as now a published author to people who need some inspiration and need some direction when they're approaching their honors degree in particular? Well, I'd say there's probably two things. The one thing that everyone always hears is do your work early because I started my work early and I got through a lot of it. And come crunch time, I'm sending in my third or fourth draft and other people are only receiving their first. And I think that helped so much in, in terms of being able to review something. Because, I mean, if, you, if you're reviewing it once and then you're submitting it for your honours, you're not going to be submitting anything spectacular. Whereas if it's gone through three reviews already, you can make those small changes and fix those grammar errors that the reviewers see and then mark you down on because it's basic stuff that should have been found. And then the second thing I would say is take proper notes when you're doing your research and your data. So when I was going through news articles, then 
you go into the news article and you're looking for storm category. So you go through 14 news articles and you find storm category and then you think, oh no, I should have looked for wind speed as well. So then you go back. And then I had to go back again when I was trying to review for the journal article and double check that they've, what wind speed statistics they've given. So is it mean, is it uh, max or what is it? So all I would say is, is rather overdo the notes and not use all of it than not do it properly because I went back to 40 articles too many times and I'd like to admit, but that's what you have to do to get the good marks. So go back, take all the notes properly first, do them in an Excel doc, use a, another application on your tablet or your laptop or something just to take proper notes and keep track of your data properly. And that's, that's the two things I would say. I think that's brilliant advice and advice that doesn't just apply to honors, but to any year of academic study. And probably a lot of it applies to academics who are writing papers as postdocs or as early career researchers, writing papers from scratch. So Keegan, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking through the process of your first paper, and I'm sure there will be many more papers to come. And good luck for the rest of the master's degree. It will be exciting to see how a very different topic lends itself to a different process of examination and a different process of turning that into a paper down the line. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. It was nice talking about all the paper, and I'm looking forward to something different with my master's paper. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut, and Resubmit. Hopefully it's given you some insight into the process of academic writing and approaching that first academic paper. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more of this show, please subscribe to this podcast. A huge thanks again to the Center of Excellence for Paleoscience for supporting this work.